Welcome back to the Backyard Professor videos. I've run across Martin Gardner's The Whys of a Philosophical Scrivener. It was one of the last books he wrote. Martin Gardner, of course, was well known for the dozens of years that he contributed the math puzzles and math games to the Scientific American magazine. He belonged in the tradition of a debunker of psychobabble, pseudo-scholarship, pseudo-science, pseudo-religion. He would tolerate no-nonsense idiocy. He belonged in the camp with Isaac Asimov, the great debunker of the age, Carl Sagan, one of the world's most famous debunkers, Michael Shermer, the, the ultimate skeptic of today, and others. So it came as a terrific shock to me to read why Martin Gardner was not an atheist. And he was described this way. I described him this way in my apologetic days. But I would like to read this selection in his book, The Whys of a Philosophical Scrivener. And that is the name of the title of this particular chapter, Why I Am Not an Atheist. The name of the chapter is Faith. Martin Gardner never lost his faith. And this was such an amazing revelation to me. I read this chapter again and again, and I would like to share it as a video with you, my audience. James Stephens in The Crock of Gold said, If you listen to your heart, said the philosopher, you will learn every good thing, for the heart is the fountain of wisdom, tossing its thought up to the brain which gives them form. Whenever I speak of religious faith, it will mean a belief unsupported by logic or science in both God and an afterlife. Bertrand Russell once defined faith in a broader way as a firm belief in something for which there is no evidence. If evidence means the kind of support provided by reason and science, there is no evidence for God and immortality. And Russell's definition seems to me concise and admirable. Faith of this pure sort, uncontaminated by evidence, is easily caricatured. In The Will to Believe, William James quotes a schoolboy remark, Faith is when you believe something you know ain't true. No fideist accepts this, of course. But if we alter it to say this, faith is when you believe something you don't know is true. It's not a bad definition. In the Christian tradition, faith has two related but distinct meanings. One is that of non-rational belief the sense adopted here. The other is that of trust. Trusting God presupposes faith in the belief sense. You can't trust a person unless you know that person exists. Throughout both Testaments of the Bible, faith almost always means trust. 
It has often been observed that nowhere does the Bible give arguments for God. You will look in vain for them in the preaching of Jesus. God's reality is taken for granted, never defended. In this and the book's remaining chapters, I will not be concerned with faith as trust, only with faith as belief. So this is Gardner's approach. The author of the Epistle of Hebrews opens his famous chapter on faith, chapter 11, with the familiar definition that Edgar J. Goodspeed translates as follows. Faith means the assurance of what we hope for. It is our conviction about things we cannot see. To a philosophical theist, this is a superb definition of faith as belief even though the chapter goes on to catalog instances of faith which are more examples of blind trust than belief, and which no non-Christian theist can accept as historical or even praiseworthy. I do not, for example, believe that God ever drowned all men, women, and children on the earth, not to mention innocent animals, except Noah and his family. Even as a myth, it is hard to admire the faith of a man capable of supposing God could be that vindictive and unforgiving. I do not believe that God asked Abraham to murder his only legitimate son as a blood offering. I know how Abraham's obedience has been justified, and I have read Kierkegaard's little book about it, Fear and Trembling, but unlike Kierkegaard and the author of Hebrews, I am under no obligation to find anything beautiful or profound in this abominable story. To those outside the Judeo-Christian tradition, Abraham appears not as a man of faith, but as a man of insane fanaticism. He wouldn't have done better to have supposed that he was listening to the voice of Satan. Jephthah, also mentioned in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, as a man of faith and uprightness, he is even harder to admire. Since only Orthodox Jew and Protestant fundamentalists now read the Old Testament thoroughly, let me urge you, if you are a liberal Christian, to look up Judges, also chapter 11 and see what you can make of this horror tale. Read how Jephthah made a rash vow that if he won a military victory over the Ammonites, he would sacrifice whatsoever first came out of his house to greet him when he returned. That turned out to be his only child. The virgin girl so loved her father that she met him dancing and shaking tambourines. Read how the poor girl, upheld by her great faith, cooperated with the demented judge and warrior. O oh, Jephthah, judge of Israel, exclaimed Shakespeare's Hamlet, what a treasure hadst thou. The Old Testament God, and many who had great faith in him, are alike portrayed in the Bible as monsters of incredible cruelty. A philosophical theist standing outside any religious tradition can construct better models of God than Jehovah. Nevertheless, Hebrews 11.1, 1, and especially in the familiar phrasing of the King James Bible, remains a beautiful way of saying how faith as a form of belief is distinct from hope and knowledge. 
I've spoken of God and immortality as twin objects of faith, and later will return to this linkage. Now let me say only that when I use the word God, it means a God who has provided for our survival after death. When I use the word immortality, it means survival in whatever manner God has provided. Following such fittiests as Immanuel Kant and Miguel de Unamuno, and in line with the overwhelming majority of theists, both past and present, I will assume that the two beliefs go hand in hand and are mutually reinforcing. Not that they can't be separated. Many thinkers have professed faith in God while denying an afterlife, but in almost every case, the God involved is a pantheist de deity. A God more or less synonymous with being or nature obviously need not be concerned over whether we mortals live again, but such a God is the God of Spinoza, or the impersonal absolute of Hegel and F.H. Bradley not a God modeled on human personality. A personal God who did not provide for immortality would be a God less just and merciful than you and I. The whole point of the person model is to elevate human attributes, not lower them. It is easier, perhaps, to hope for or even believe in an afterlife without faith in a personal God— one simply regards survival as part of the nature of things. This point of view is sometimes taken by atheists and pantheists who believe in reincarnation. Among modern philosophers, John Ellis McTaggart of Cambridge University and the French-born American Kurt John Ducasse were notable in combining non-belief in God and a belief in the pre-existence and the afterlife of human souls. Robert Ingersoll, the famous American infidel, he never hesitated to denounce any kind of a deity, yet he was curiously open-minded about life after death. One may, of course, hope for immortality, and at the same time estimate the odds against it as high, as one may hope to win a sweepstakes without believing the win is likely. Although it is possible to believe in a personal God without believing in immortality and vice versa, both views are extremely rare, and in any case they play no role in what follows. I agree with Unamuno for almost all theists, God is essentially the provider of immortality. Did any religious leader ever emphasize this more than Jesus? In the first chapter of The Tragic Sense of Life, Unamuno tells of suggesting to a peasant that there might be a God who governs heaven and earth, but that we may not be immortal in the traditional sense. The peasant responded, Then wherefore God? Let us now inquire as to the sources of this faith. What prompts some men and women and not others to make that quixotic somersault of the soul what Kierkegaard calls the leap of faith? What enables them to turn themselves around like Dante's rotation at the center of the earth when he began his climb from hell to purgatory, and believe in God, 
and immortality, even though both beliefs are unsupported by reason or science, even though both are plainly counterindicated by persuasive arguments. Most people never worry about why they believe any religious doctrine. They just absorb their beliefs, often conflicting from parents, relatives, friends, and surrounding cultures. But insofar as one is capable of deciding whether to believe or not believe in God and immortality, or at least to reflect about such a decision, what can be said to justify this leap? Perhaps there is built into human nature a natural tendency toward faith, something comparable to a natural thirst for water. This is, of course, an ancient notion. In modern times, is there a genetic basis for faith? Some sociobiologists have raised this possibility. Maybe it is balanced by a genetic predisposition toward atheism, like conflicting genetic impulses toward egoism and altruism. Maybe the relative strengths of the two tendencies vary with individuals, and vary statistically with cultures. I do not know, and I do not have the answer to these questions. Assume there is no genetic basis for either atheism or altruism. The same questions return to an environmental basis. It is obvious that most cultures within recorded history have been dominated by religious systems. We can say that in a reasonably healthy society, one that does a good job of meeting human needs, the healthier members of that society makes leaps of faith. Even Freud, for whom religion was a neurosis, considered the possibility that all cultures need such illusions to remain happy and secure. Soviet philosophy is officially atheist. And for decades, we've watched a remarkable religious experiment taking place in Russia, an attempt by the government to stamp out religious faith among its citizens. How successful has this been? Even among Soviet officials, are the majority genuine atheists, or are they closet believers? Is the great Russian campaign for atheism influencing Russia for good or ill? Is there a direct or an inverse correlation in Russia, or for that matter, anywhere else, between mental health and faith? I do not know the answer to these questions. There is, however, one fact about which both atheists and theists can agree. For many people, eh, perhaps most people, there is a deep, ineradicable desire not to cease to exist. Uh, perhaps this desire, this fear of falling into what Lord Dunsany once called the unreverberate blackness of the abyss, is no more than an expression of genetic mechanisms for avoiding death. Or is it more? It is easy to understand why any person would think death as final. Everything in our experience indicates it. 
but I share with Uno Muno a vast incredulity when I meet individuals seemingly well-adjusted and happy who solemnly assure me they have absolutely no desire to live again. Do they really mean it? Or are they wearing a mask, which they suppose fashionable, while deep inside their hearts, in the middle of the night and in moments of agony, they secretly hope to be surprised some day by the existence and mercy of God? That the leap of faith springs from passionate hope or longing, or, to say the same thing, from passionate despair and fear, is readily admitted by most Fideists, certainly by me and by the Fideists I admire. Faith is an expression of feeling, of emotion, not of reason. But you may say, does not this lower faith? Is not man the only rational animal? No. Emotion more than reason, certainly as much as reason, distinguishes us from the beasts. More often I've seen a cat reason, wrote Unamuno, in that marvelous chapter to which I referred a moment ago, than laugh or weep. Yes, and I have watched my desk calculator reason more often than laugh or weep. Freud thought of faith as little more than a desire to obtain in one adult's life the warmth, security, and comfort of the child who is cared for by loving parents. Of course. What else? Friedrich Schleiermacher said it all when he spoke of faith as springing from our feelings of creaturehood, our dependence on outside help for our survival. The true fightiest grants it all. He may, in my opinion, in fact should, go even another step, the ultimate step in conceding points to the atheist. Not only are there no compelling proofs of God or an afterlife, but our experience strongly tells us that nature does not care a fig about the fate of the entire human race, that death plunges each of us back into the nothingness that preceded our birth. Is there need to elaborate the obvious? Thousands of good people are killed by an earthquake. Where is God? Not only is there no God, said Woody Allen, but try getting a plumber on weekends. So dependent is the mind on the material structure of the brain that genetic damage, drugs, uh, injuries, diseases, operations, and senility can severely alter one's personality and ability to think and act normally. Even ordinary sleep can wipe out consciousness. If there is a soul capable of existing apart from that gray lump of tissue inside every skull, it is as hidden from us as God is hidden. I agree with Pierre Boyle and with Unomuno that when cold reason contemplates the world, it finds not only an absence of God, but good reason for supposing there is no God at all. From this perspective, from what Unamuno called the tragic sense of life, from this despair, faith comes to the rescue. 
Not only is something non-rational, but in a sense, irrational. For Unamuno, the great symbol of a person of faith was his Spanish hero, Don Quixote. Faith is indeed quixotic. It is absurd. Let us admit it. Let us concede everything. To a rational mind, the world looks like a world without God. It looks like a world with no hope for another life. To think otherwise, to believe in spite of appearances, is surely a kind of a madness. The atheist sees clearly that windmills are in fact only windmills, that Dulcinea is just a poor country bumpkin with a homely face and an unpleasant smell. The atheist is Sarah justifiably laughing in her old age at Abraham's belief that God will give them a son. What can be said in reply? How can a fideist admit that faith is a kind of a madness, a dream fed by passionate desire, and yet maintain that one is not mad to make the leap? Persons of strong faith sometimes say they have a direct awareness of God, a knowledge of the sort that the philosophers have called knowledge by acquaintance. Mystics claim to perceive God in a manner analogous to looking at the sun. We shall not linger over these claims. They carry no weight with anyone who has not had such an experience. No empirical tests can confirm that a person who professes such contact with God is actually in such contact. In many cases of persons who claim such visions, there is good evidence that they were experiencing delusions. A subtler argument was made famous by Immanuel Kant. Pure reason, said Kant, can prove neither God nor immortality, nor can it show them to be impossible. But we do not live by pure reason alone. We also live by what Kant called practical reason, by what a modern Kantian could call pragmatic reason. Everyone, said Kant, has a sense of duty, a consciousness. This is Freud's superego. It tells us there is a difference between right and wrong, that it is our duty to be as good as we can, and thereby promote the summum bonum, the highest good for humanity. This moral law within us is so powerful and awesome, as awesome as the spectacle of the starry heavens, that we cannot escape believing that the highest good will someday be realized. But look around. You see virtuous people, often children, suffering and dying for no apparent reason. At the same time, you see wicked persons living healthy, happy lives, prospering until they die peacefully of old age. Where is the justice in such a scene? It can be just, said Kant, only if we assume another life, a life in which good is rewarded and wickedness punished. Not only that, but the perfection of goodness for every individual demands unlimited time in which to grow and profit from experience. Our life is cut off when we just started to learn how to live. 
if there is no afterlife, no future in which virtue and happiness can be correlated, then our sense of morality becomes a sham. It arouses in us a passionate hope that can never be fulfilled. Kant did not regard these arguments as proofs in the sense that one can prove a theorem in mathematics or establish a fact or a law of science with high probability. We cannot know there is an afterlife. All Kant insists on is this. If we take seriously our hope that justice will be done with respect to our lives, we must posit an afterlife. And if there is an afterlife, there must be a God who is good enough and powerful enough to provide it. It is not our duty to believe in God and immortality. Our duty is only to be good. And many atheists can't single out Spinoza can be very good. But if we want our belief consistent with the demands of our moral nature, we must posit God and immortality. And if we have faith, we do more than recognize them as posits. We also believe them to be true. What should a modern fideist make of this? I think there is much to be said for Kant's arguments, and I will return to them again, but I agree with Unamuno that behind the complicated language of Kant's critique of practical reason is one simple fact which Kant did not fully admit even to himself. As a man of flesh and bone, to use one of Unamuno's favorite expressions, Kant passionately desired God and immortality. He may have thought he posited God to make sense of morality. Actually, he posited God because he needed God in order to live. But let us listen to Unamuno himself as he writes about Kant in the first chapter of The Tragic Sense of Life. Take Kant. The man, Immanuel Kant, who was born and lived in Königsberg in the latter part of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th. In the philosophy of this man, a man of heart and head. That is to say, a man, there is a significant somersault. As Kierkegaard, another man, and what a man, would have said, the somersault from the critique of pure reason to the critique of practical reason. He reconstructs in the critique of practical reason what he destroyed in his former study, the critique of pure reason. In spite of what those may say who do not see the man himself, Kant reconstructed with the heart that which the head he had overthrown. And we know from the testimony of those who knew him and from his testimony in his letters and his private declarations that the man, Kant, 
the more or less selfish old bachelor who provided or who professed philosophy at Königsberg at the end of the century of the Encyclopedia and the Goddess of Reason was a man much preoccupied with the problem. I mean, the only real vital problem. The problem that strikes at the very root of our being, the problem of our individual and personal destiny of the immortality of the soul. The man Kant was not resigned to die utterly, and because he was not resigned to die utterly, he made that leap, that immortal somersault, from the one critique to the other. Whoever reads the critique of practical wisdom, carefully and without blinkers, will see that in strict fact the existence of God is therein deduced from the immortality of the soul, and not the immortality of the soul from the existence of God. The categorical imperative leads us to a moral postulate which necessitates in its turn in the teleological, or rather the eschatological order, the immortality of the soul. And in order to sustain this immortality, God is introduced. All the rest is the jugglery of the professional of philosophy. Kant argued that it was necessary to posit God. This satisfies a universal human desire for moral justice. Unamuno did not disagree. He simply saw more clearly than Kant, or perhaps more clearly than Kant was willing to admit, that the desire for moral justice flows from a deeper passion. For Unamuno, for all those who do not want to die who do not want those whom they love to die. God is a necessary posit to escape from unbearable anguish. It is easy to say with the head that God does not exist, but to say it with the heart? Not to believe that there is a God, or to believe that there is not a God, wrote Unamuno, is one thing. To resign oneself to there not being a God is another thing, and it is a terrible and inhumane thing. But not to wish that there be a God exceeds every other moral monstrosity. Although, as a matter of fact, those who deny God deny him because of their despair at not finding him. Psalm 14.1, Unamuno liked to remind his readers, does not say, the fool hath said in his head, there is no God. There is another way to approach the task of justifying faith. I like to view it as a generalization of Blaise Pascal's famous wager. But first let us see how Pascal himself presented it. Pascal was a Roman Catholic, and, like all Catholics of his day, he believed that every human soul had one of two destinies, eternal happiness in heaven or eternal misery in hell. Moreover, he believed that the soul's future state depended on accepting or rejecting Catholic doctrine. 
a person knowing of the church's claim is thus faced with two alternatives. He may accept or reject the church. In either case, the church's doctrines may be true or false. Suppose he accepts. The payoff is infinite happiness if the church is right, at a most a finite loss if it is wrong. Suppose he rejects. The payoff is at most a finite gain if the church is wrong, but infinite misery if the church is right. In view of these possibilities, said Pascal, is not joining the church clearly the best bet? So it's really hard to imagine a reader of this book being impressed by Pascal's argument. Uh, as numerous critics have po pointed out, even in Pascal's time, the Muslim religion offered the same monstrous alternatives to potential converts. But if you wagered on immortality in the Islamic heaven, you can run the risk of misery in the Christian hell. Who could genuinely convert to all religions that offered similar alternatives? Nevertheless, behind Pascal's wager, there is a broader notion that can be applied to belief in God and immortality quite apart from the salvation doctrines of any organized church. This generalized Pascalian wager is suggested as far back as Plato's Phaedo dialogue. This is where Socrates, before drinking the hemlock, speaks of belief in another life as a worthy risk, because fair is the prize and the hope great. In recent times, the generalized wager has found its classical defense in William James' The Will to Believe, an essay to which I now turn. James argued his case with more care than he is usually credited with. First, he makes a distinction essential to all that follows this. Uh, he, he distinguishes between what he calls a, a live option and a dead or a trivial option. A live option is a choice between two alternatives that meets three provisios. Number one, the alternatives must be plausible enough so that you are truly capable of deciding either way. Should you believe the earth flat or round? Well, this was once a live option. Today it is dead except for a handful of Protestant fundamentalists. Should you believe or not believe that the Reverend Sun Myung Moon is the new Messiah? This is a live option for some naive young people, but for most people it is not. Should you spend your next vacation in Indianapolis? This is not a live option if you have no reason or desire to go there. So, number two, the choice must be forced. It must be what Kierkegaard liked to call an either-or. James gives the humble counterexample of choosing between going out with or without an umbrella. You can avoid the choice by not going out at all. 
Should you become a Scientologist or a Mooney? Well, clearly you need not join either cult. But the choice between voting for candidate X or not voting for candidate X, that is an either-or. Now, for number three, the alternatives must be momentous, not trivial. Should you have an egg for breakfast? This meets the first two criteria, but it's not a live option because the alternatives are too unimportant. Should you marry a certain person? Well, now the question is not so trivial. James' thesis can be put simply, when we are confronted with live options and when there are insufficient grounds for deciding rationally, we have no other way to decide except emotionally, by what James calls our passional nature. Who can deny that when a momentous decision is thrust upon us and the head cannot decide, the heart must take over? But James is saying more than that. He is saying that there is nothing irrational or absurd about letting the heart take over. The question, does God exist? Well, this confronts many people, perhaps most people, as a live option. The choice is forced in the sense that one must either believe or not believe. The agnostic may not insist there is no God, but he has exercised his option not to believe. Elsewhere, James likens the agnostic to a person who refuses to stop a murder, or to bail water from a sinking ship, or to save one's life by leaping across a chasm. The metaphors are overdramatic and pejorative, but the basic point is sound. To avoid making an emotional decision about a live option when there are no other grounds for a decision is itself an emotional decision, and one that can have momentous consequences. Like Kierkegaard, James spoke of faith as a leap in the dark. A leap across a precipice is made at our peril. Of course, one would be foolish to make such a leap for no reason at all, but if there are no reasons, then it is not a live option. The decision to believe or to not believe in God, James maintained, is for many persons a live option because it makes a difference in how they feel and how they live. The leap of faith is made at our peril, yes, but so is the decision not to leap. James expressed it polytheistically. A man who shuts himself up in snarling logicality and demands that the gods extort his recognition willy-nilly or not get it at all, may be cutting himself off forever from his only opportunity of making the gods' acquaintance. James closes his essay with a passage from Fitzjames Stephens. We stand on a mountain pass in the midst of whirling snow and blinding mist, through which we get glimpses now and then of paths which may be deceptive. If we stand still, we shall be frozen to death. If we take the wrong road, we shall be dashed to pieces. We do not certainly know whether there is any right one. What must we do? Be strong and of good courage. Act for the best, hope for the best, 
and take what comes. If death ends all, we cannot meet death better. The resemblance to Pascal's wager is obvious. And in other writings, especially in his essay on the sentiment of rationality, James makes the parallel even stronger. In substance, this is what he says. Belief in God and immortality are unsupported by logic or science, but because they are live options, we cannot avoid an emotional decision. If for you the leap of faith makes you happier, then for you faith is the best bet. You have much to gain and little to lose. You have a right to believe. Uh, in later years, James said he would have called his essay the right to believe. I think James would have liked the way Count Manuel in James Branch Cabell's Figures of Earth formulates the wager. That may be very well, sir. But it is much more comfortable to live with than your opinion. And living is my occupation just now. Dying I shall attend to in its due turn. And of the two, my opinion is the more pleasant to die with. And thereafter, if your opinion is right, I shall never even know that my opinion was wrong, so that I have everything to gain in the way of pleasurable anticipations anyhow, and nothing whatsoever to lose, by clinging to the foolish, fond old faith which my fathers had before me, said Emmanuel as sturdily as ever. Now, it was characteristic of James, as we saw in the earlier chapters, to indulge at times in rhetoric that made his views easy to ridicule. His many examples of how faith in a fact can help create the fact, such as belief in one's career or in winning a football game or a battle, surely have no relevance to faith in God, as if somehow believing in God could make God a reality. And George Santayana in his marvelous essay on James, is right in attacking James for these excesses, a product, in my opinion, of James' enthusiasm coupled with the confused epistemology. But Bertrand Russell's attack in the first chapter uh, on James in his history of Western philosophy is as wide of the mark as his attack on Dewey in the chapter that follows. Russell actually suggests that James' arguments would establish the truth that Santa Claus exists as readily as God exists, although it should have been clear to Russell that Santa Claus' hypothesis is not a live option for anyone except a small child. James might well have argued that under certain conditions a child is justified in believing in Santa Claus, but as soon as the child matures enough to understand the evidence against the hypothesis, the belief tips the other way. On the other hand, I think Russell is right in saying that James often wrote as if he were concerned only with the pragmatic consequences of thinking and acting as if God exists not with the question of whether God actually does exist. In my opinion, James did not regard faith in such a superficial way. In any case, it is not how most fideists regard faith. 
It should be obvious that anyone who manages the leap of faith does not say to him or herself, I really don't know whether God exists or not, or whether there is another life, but because I find these beliefs comforting, I shall pretend they are true. Uh, perhaps some philosophers have been capable of this crazy-as-if approach to faith, but I've never met a theist who thought that way. Quite the contrary, for a person of faith, belief in God's reality is usually stronger than belief in any scientific hypothesis. This was true even of Kant. It surely is a mistake to accuse Kant of the Alzob perversion that some of his followers proclaimed in Germany. True, belief in God is not knowledge. But Kant, as he himself said, denied knowledge in order to make room for faith. For Kant, as for Plato, the phenomenal world, the phaneron open to exploration by science, is less real than the transcendent world of which the phaneron is but a shadow. It is our transcendent self, momentarily trapped in space-time, that believes that faith in a transcendent God. Not only does Kant avoid the notion of God as an as-if posit less real than the universe, he actually argues the very opposite. Let me speak personally. By the grace of God, I managed to leap when I was in my teens. For me, it was then bound up with an ugly Protestant fundamentalism. I outgrew this slowly. I outgrew this slowly and eventually decided I could not even call myself a Christian without using language deceptively, but faith in God and immortality remained. Much of my novel, The Flight of Peter Fromm, reflects these painful changes. The original leap was not a sharp transition. For most believers, there's not even a transition. They simply grow up, accepting the religion of the parents, whatever it is. For others, as we all know, belief can come suddenly in an explosive conversion experience, as startling as a thunderclap. James applied the term overbeliefs to beliefs supported only by the heart. This does not mean they are not genuine beliefs. It only means they are beliefs of a special and peculiar sort. Why do I believe in the Pythagorean theorem? Because I can follow a deductive proof that rests on the posit of Euclidean geometry, and because the theorem is confirmed by experience. But this is not a choice about a live option. In a sense, Belief in the formal truth of the theorem is a trivial, empty belief. It tells me only that if I accept certain posits and rules for manipulating certain symbols, I'm allowed to form a chain of those symbols that can be interpreted as the Pythagorean theorem. I believe in the formal truth of the theorem for much the same reason that I believe no bachelor is married. Mathematical theorems are useful because they apply to the physical world. But, as I've said earlier, the applications require what Rudolf Carnap called correspondence rules, such as identifying the number one with a pebble or a star, or a straight line with a ray of light. As soon as we move from pure mathematics to applied mathematics, 
we move to a realm where hypothesis becomes uncertain, where the best we can do is weigh them with varying degrees of credibility. Naturally, we believe most strongly in those assertions of science that seem to us the best confirmed. But belief in God can carry with it a certitude springing from the heart that is stronger than any belief about the world. It is easier for me to believe that any fact or law of science is no more than a momentary illusion, produced by the great magician and subject to change whenever the great magician decides to modify his act than to believe that the great magician doesn't exist. But this certainly is not knowledge of the kind that we have in mathematics or science. It is trivially true that we believe what we know or think we know. To believe what we do not know, what we hope for but cannot see, this is the very essence of faith. I'm quite content to confess with Unamuno that I have no basis whatever for my belief in God other than a passionate longing that God exists and that I and others will not cease to exist. Because I believe with my heart that God upholds all things, it follows that I believe that my leap of faith, in a way beyond my comprehension, is God outside of me asking and wanting me to believe, and God within me responding. This has been said thousands of times before by theists. So let's listen to how Unamuno says it. Wishing that God may exist and acting and feeling as if he did exist and desiring God's existence and acting comfortably with this desire is the means whereby we create God. That is wherein God creates himself in us, manifests himself to us, opens and reveals himself to us. For God goes out to meet him who seeks him with love and by love, and hides himself from him who searches for him with the cold and loveless reason. God wills that the heart should have rest, but not the head, reversing the order of the physical life in which the head sleeps and rests at times while the heart wakes and works unceasingly, and thus knowledge without love leads us away from God, and love, even without knowledge, and perhaps better without it, leads us to God and through God to wisdom. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, no more can be said. The leap of faith in its inner nature, it remains opaque. I understand it as little as I understand the essence of a photon. Any of the elements I listed earlier as possible causes of belief, along with others I failed to list, may be involved in God's way of prompting the leap. I do not know. I do not know. At the beginning of the leap, as at the beginning of all decisions, is the mystery of free will. A mystery which, for me, is inseparable from the mysteries of time and causality and the mystery of the will of God.